Support for this podcast and the following message come from Humana. Employees are the heartbeat of your business. That's why Humana offers group dental, vision, life, and disability plans designed to protect them. Exceptional service, broad networks, and modern benefits. That's the power of human care. Major funding for The Pulse is provided by a leadership gift from the Sutherland family. The Sutherlands support WHYY and its commitment to the production of programs that improve our quality of life. This is The Pulse, stories about the people and places at the heart of health and science. I'm Mike and Scott. Shelby Campbell is eight years old and an active kid. I like to do hockey and roller skating, and I also like to do gymnastics. She also loves making slime. What color slime is your favorite? Teal. Teal? Really? Okay. Do you put, yeah. do you put glitter in it? Sometimes. Makes such a mess, right? <laughs> yeah. Despite Shelby's cheerful attitude, her life has been severely impacted by a disorder called beta thalassemia. It's an inherited blood disorder where the body doesn't make enough beta globin. That's a component of hemoglobin, which delivers oxygen to the tissues. And every 21 days, we would go to the hospital to get a blood transfusion. That's Shelby's mom, Michelle Campbell. Shelby needs these transfusions to stay alive. But then they led to another problem, iron overload, excess iron in the body. And tests showed that Shelby's levels were rising, even though she was taking medications for that. The threat with that is that your organs fill with iron and then don't work properly. To get rid of the excess iron, Shelby eventually had to be hooked up to a needle and pump every night for 12 hours. Which meant that she missed playdates and sleepovers and sports. But when you get older, you miss a lot more. And this intervention wasn't getting the iron out quickly enough. Then Michelle and her husband were told about another option, a gene therapy treatment that had just been FDA-approved two months earlier. If it worked properly... It could be a game changer, but it would mean a long hospital stay and a grueling process. After weighing the risks and benefits, Michelle and her husband decided this was the best option for Shelby. First, doctors had to harvest Shelby's stem cells and modify them so they could produce functional beta-globin. But for Shelby's body to accept these modified cells, she first had to undergo chemotherapy to essentially wipe out her own defective blood cells and make room for the new ones. Shelby got to the hospital in June of this year, and she stayed for 51 days. I was scared. My belly felt funny, and then my brain felt weird. But she made the best of it. She told me she did crafts, made slime, played a lot of Monopoly. Everybody was rooting for her. And when she left the hospital, she got a standing ovation from staff. And then when we got home, I felt better. Shelby has been monitored closely since her procedure. She gets weekly tests to make sure her blood levels are normal. Michelle says so far, everything looks great. Shelby has not needed any blood products since we've came home, which is actually not what we expected. We expected her to need platelets for a couple weeks, but 
Her body's been holding strong and she hasn't had a blood transfusion in 65 days. And could this be a permanent solution? Yes. Best case, she would never need a transfusion forever. I hope I don't need to go to the hospital because I don't want to miss any school in third grade. And what do you look forward to the most? Like when once you're all healthy and you can do all the things again that you like to do, what do you look forward to the most? Going to build a bear and maybe going ice skating. All right. What kind of bear are you going to build? I don't know because there's different ones, but I hope there's the new Little Mermaid one out. I hope you find it. I'm sure you will. You deserve all the all the bears in the world. <laughs> and then in six months, I get to go to Disneyland. Are you serious? Disney World. Wow. That is so exciting. For many people, gene therapy is delivering hope for a normal life. Being able to go to school, ice skating, or on a trip to Disney World. A life not hampered by illness, debilitating symptoms, and the constant need for medical care. The idea that you could attack genetic illnesses right at the root, that you could modify people's genes to treat or cure disease, is coming to fruition. And the field has seen major breakthroughs in recent years. On this episode, we'll take a look at what's new and what's yet to come. First up, Gene therapy is producing a lot of wins right now, but this line of research almost came to a screeching halt over 20 years ago. In September of 1999, a young patient named Jesse Gelsinger died four days after receiving a gene therapy treatment for a metabolic disorder at the University of Pennsylvania. He had an intense inflammatory response. The case sent shockwaves through the research community and the country. The U.S. Senate is looking into a medical procedure called gene therapy, a process where genes are injected into a patient to correct a serious health problem. While the field shows great promise, it also has caused heartbreak for one father in Arizona. In another nightmare scenario, children receiving gene therapy for an immune system disorder in Paris developed leukemia as a side effect of the treatment. In the U.S., federal legislators held hearings on gene therapy following Jesse Gelsinger's death. They discussed tighter regulations. The events of the past few months involving gene therapy research have given all of us, our government and our society, reason to pause. Trials were halted. Excitement around the promise of gene therapy faded. Investment and funding dried up. But some researchers remain convinced that these were setbacks and not the end of the road. Among them was Kathy High. And how did you first become interested in gene therapy and its promise? Well, I'm trained as a hematologist, and my first faculty job began in 1985, just as AIDS was sweeping through the hemophilia population. In the early days of the AIDS epidemic, the country's donated blood supply used for transfusions was contaminated with HIV. And eventually it became clear that for people with severe hemophilia A, 
in the United States, more than 90% of them were infected with HIV. Hemophilia is a bleeding disorder caused by a mutation in one of the genes that provides instructions needed to form a blood clot. And Kathy was trying to get to that root cause. So it was a very difficult time, and it was during that time that we had begun doing experiments with animal models of hemophilia and showing that we could transfer a gene into a target cell and get that cell to begin making the missing clotting factor. And so that was the genesis of my interest because I, along with many other people, thought if only we could give these people the gene and they could make it themselves, they wouldn't have to worry about contaminants in the blood supply. The modified gene was packaged inside of a harmless virus, a vector. One of the great aspects of the, the University of North Carolina, where I had my first faculty job, was that they had access to a naturally occurring dog model of hemophilia. And so we cloned the dog factor nine gene and began doing experiments to try to see if we could transfer the gene in to the liver in a hemophilic dog. In 1999, she published a paper describing a successful treatment for hemophilia in dogs. She continued her research at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. She wanted to use the same model on human patients. But then, after Jesse Gelsinger's death, it seemed like her work, though it was very different, would also be impacted by the fallout. There was a sort of general feeling that this whole technology was simply not ready for prime time. But then when things began to look gloomy and all those people departed, you were left only with the true believers and the people who had a lot of experience with all of the aspects of gene transfer and gene therapy. And I knew there were no problems here that we couldn't solve. We only needed time. But it looked like time was running out for this new field, or resources were anyway. There were challenges, I guess, in terms of the infrastructure falling away, some of the money falling away. (laughs) And to do gene therapy, for example, you need vectors that... I'm going to try to say this in the most basic terms, but that deliver the therapy into the place where they need to go, a bit of a Trojan horse with the reworked gene inside. So what happened when some of the companies that were making these vectors started to disappear? Well, we were working with a biotech company in Northern California, and they specialized in the gene delivery vehicle that we were using, adeno-associated viral vectors, AAV, the the company in Northern California began to turn away from gene therapy. They felt that they wouldn't be able to find resources to keep working on it. That's when Kathy realized she needed to find a new supply of vectors or create a place where they could be produced. She went to the head of the children's hospital at the time, Stephen Altshuler, with a proposal. Could they make these vectors in-house? And I have to say that I did not hold out much hope that he would agree. All of the publicity around gene therapy at that time was very negative. I remember an article, I think it was in Nature, that said, gene therapy, cursed or inching toward a cure. 
And then another one that said the headline was something like, gene therapy still lacks a breakthrough. You know, so I thought, well, I hope he's not reading these things. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, he listened to me and he said, all right, let me think about it. And I thought, oh, he's going to say no. I have to think of another plan. What, What can my plan B be? But to my surprise, I went back to talk to him a week later and he said, well, uh, you keep telling me that there are no problems here that cannot be solved. And if gene therapy really comes to fruition, it will be very important for children's hospitals because children's hospitals bear the brunt of genetic disease. And therefore, I am going to find the space and the resources for you. And he only had one request in return. Which was? He said, you can't use all the resources to work only on hemophilia. You have to work on at least one other disease that affects the pediatric population. And I said, okay, no problem. Kathy collaborated with researchers working on a treatment for an inherited form of blindness. And this is where she landed her first major success. In 2017, they received FDA approval for a gene therapy called Luxturna. And what kinds of results did did the people see who were getting the therapy for the blindness? Well, it was uh, evident that they could do things that they had not been able to do before. And, you know, based on whether they were a child or an adult, I mean, you know, the teenagers would say things like they could see the numbers on their cell phone Mm -hmm. and (laughs) things like that. So clearly we were seeing that something was going forward. The gene therapy treatments for hemophilium that Kathy has been involved with are still on the path toward FDA approval. But she says patients in the clinical trials are already seeing benefits. And there were two brothers who were treated uh, from Canada. And one of them told the story about that he was running and he fell after he'd gotten his treatment. And he kept thinking, oh, something terrible is going to happen. He woke up in the middle of the night and examined himself again to see if he <laughs> but he didn't. And, you know, after three days, he said, after three days, he called his brother and said, I had a big fall and I didn't bleed at all. <laughs> so very exciting, very exciting. Kathy High is a gene therapy researcher and visiting professor at the Rockefeller University in New York. Coming up, one family's fight to get their son into a clinical trial. First one was denied. Appeal immediately. Denied. That's next on The Pulse. Support for NPR and the following message come from Betterment, the automated investing and savings app. CEO Sarah Levy shares how Betterment's innovation can help Americans save. The real innovation for Betterment about a decade ago was taking a set of tools that were used by the ultra-wealthy and making them accessible to the average investor. And that includes tax strategies, that includes dollar-cost averaging, that includes taking a long-term view and not getting distracted by market volatility. These are all sort of tricks of the trade. And what Betterment did is they basically said, no matter the amount of money you have, it's always good to be invested. It's always good to start early. It's always good to save. And the power of being consistent in your habits is really the path to long-term wealth. 
Learn more about automated investing and saving at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk. Performance not guaranteed. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Online. Is your child asking questions on their homework you don't feel equipped to answer? IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. One subscription gets you everything. One site for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And NPR listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com NPR. This is The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. We're talking about new developments in the field of gene therapy. A lot of people with rare and devastating diseases look to gene therapy as a path toward a cure, the only path, perhaps. And every time there's a new option, a new clinical trial, it means a ray of hope, but also a mad scramble to get more information and to try to get enrolled in the trial. Nicole Leonard has this story of a family facing a looming deadline. The Huber family lives in a two-story house at the top of a cul-de-sac in Wilmington, Delaware. I'm greeted by a small, fluffy dog and the kids. There's Stone, who is five and full of energy. My name is Stone. And Cash, who is six. He's quieter than his little brother, a bit shy, and also tired from a recent round of steroid treatments. Before his second birthday, Cash's parents, Jenna and Phil, noticed their son was showing early signs of muscle weakness. They had to keep going back to the doctors to have these symptoms taken seriously. But eventually, they got a devastating diagnosis. Cash had Duchenne muscular dystrophy. It mainly affects boys and causes the muscles in the body to deteriorate. About 20,000 children globally are diagnosed with this incurable genetic disorder every year. The disease is always fatal, and most people who have it don't live past their 20s or 30s. We were served the diagnosis, and I say served because it was like, here's your death sentence, you know, and and good luck, and there's nothing. There might be, you know, in the future, this kind of treatment, they're working on it, but it's in in clinical trials, and it's not necessarily going to be available to you. It's dependent on, you know, so many different factors. As horrible as this moment was, Jenna says she and Phil didn't wallow too long in the diagnosis. They immediately started researching future therapies that might one day be available to cash, including gene therapy. It was the golden goose from day one, Mm -hmm. and my eye was on that prize from day one. They heard about gene therapies that were being tested for muscular dystrophy and were aiming to slow the progression of the disease, pause the muscle deterioration and weakness. Clinical trials targeted young boys four to five years old, because at those ages, many kids are still ambulatory, not yet confined to walkers and wheelchairs. So Jenna and Phil got to work, tried to get Cash into a clinical trial for gene therapy when he was four. He passed all the preliminary medical tests and screenings, and while he was still very much ambulatory, he didn't complete a test where he had to go from laying down to standing up in under five seconds. So he was disqualified. You know, it was like a behavioral thing. He just didn't want to do it, so he failed out of that. And, you know, we were left kind of like hopeless again Mm because there was no timeline on when this would be FDA approved or commercially available for him. 
But that hope returned when the FDA granted accelerated approval for a gene therapy drug this past June. The federal agency determined that the treatment was safe and that it had potential to delay disease progression. It doesn't return or repair any muscle that is already lost or damaged, but researchers say it can cause further breakdown. As for how long, nobody knows yet. But for the Huber family, this was the lifeline they had been waiting for. The treatment is narrowly approved for kids four and five years old, and that meant a race against the clock for cash. His sixth birthday was fast approaching that summer. His parents rushed him to Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, where the drug was being administered. And then they learned the upcoming birthday was just one obstacle. They told me the price, and they sat me back, and they're like, so yeah, this is going to be $3.2 million. I remember just sitting back in my seat, and like my whole heart, I was like, I'm sorry, you guys, but I was like, we don't, we don't have that kind of money. And they're like, no, 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 the insurance will pay for it. Well, in my mind, I was like, the insurance is going to pay for this? $3.2 million? Okay. All right. Phil had good reason to be skeptical, especially considering what happened next when they submitted the request to their Delaware-based health insurance company. First one was denied. Appeal. Immediately. Uh, like, they have 72 hours. And then we put the other one there. Denied. For weeks, Phil spent hours on the phone every day with the insurers, with activist organizations, with anyone who might be able to help, as he desperately searched for a way to get the treatment approved and paid for. Jenna says it was a stressful time. She was devastated that they might miss out on the therapy for cash after coming so close. Because it was like, you know, this is something that we went through just about like a year and a half ago. You know, we failed out of that trial, and then the rug was kind of like, it was like dangling a carrot and the rug was just swept, like taken from our feet, you know, again. After many appeals and a petition letter signed by thousands of community members and families, the insurance company reversed its decision and approved the treatment. Right after his sixth birthday, Cash received the one-time treatment infusion in September. It was such a relief because it was like, we got him there, he was healthy, we quarantined him. He wasn't sick, no sniffling, like all the yeah. symptoms. You know what I mean? They're like, we can't have any of that. And we got him in there, like in his little bubble of life. And he mm -hmm. got it in him. And he was just so good. He's such a good kid, man. And they're already seeing changes in cash. To see him, like, run around with his brother, wrestle when he wasn't wrestling a few weeks ago. He's bounding up the stairs. He wasn't doing that before. He, I have been giving him piggyback rides up for, like, six months now. Like, it's been really exciting. Jenna and Phil are under no illusion that this treatment is a cure. They know it's still being studied, and there's no clear roadmap from here on out about the trajectory of Cash's disease. But they are hoping this will buy them more time. He's still not going to be able to, like, run like a dash the way that kids do and climb things, and but he can at least walk out to the playground and walk around and be included and catch up and keep up in his own way, you know? And it's just like, that is like a dream come true for us. Because, you know, otherwise- I just want him to be able to walk for the rest of his life. That's it. He doesn't have to be a superstar. He can just be like our superstar, you know what I mean? He's just, he's cash and he's gonna be what he's supposed to be anyway. So like all of our expectations, you know, as a parent are just like out the door because now it's just like, dude, the kid's just got something amazing and he's just gonna live his, the best life that he can live at this point. 
Jenna and Phil say as exciting as this is, they feel heartbroken for so many other families with kids who are older than five. This drug is not currently approved for treating them. They're still walking. They deserve this drug. Their their hearts are stable. Their lungs are, are functioning fully. You know, they deserve it just as much as Cash does. Cash started kindergarten this fall, where he's learning the alphabet, making new friends, and playing outside at recess. He gets weekly blood work, and his parents take him to the hospital about once a month following the gene therapy treatment. Researchers will likely study his case for the rest of his life. Jenna and Phil say they can't help but imagine what that might look like for Cash, even if it isn't a certainty. Cash is going to grow up, and he's going to be an adult. He's going to be a 40, 50, 60-year-old man, you know, and before that wasn't something that we would have been confident in saying. I probably would have said it anyway, but I don't know if I would have believed it, and now it's true. This is something that's going to happen. For The Pulse, I'm Nicole Leonard. The price tag is a major issue for gene therapy. Remember what Cash's dad, Phil, said? $3.2 million, the insurance is going to pay for this? Okay. But the cost is coming down for some of these therapies. For example, CAR T-cell therapy. In 2012, this approach created what looked like a miracle for Emily Whitehead. She was the first child to receive this brand new treatment after her leukemia had relapsed twice and she was out of other options. Now, more than 10 years later, not only is Emily cancer-free and doing well, the manufacturing process for this therapy is changing, which will make the treatment more available to more people around the world. This summer, I went to the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia to see that process in action and to learn how it all came about. These are the large liquid nitrogen freezers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you see a number of these. Steve Grupp is one of the people who helped develop CAR T-cell therapy, and he's the pediatrician who treated Emily Whitehead. He runs the cell therapy and transplant program here at the hospital. CAR T-cell therapy is a way of using the immune system to treat cancer. And this was something that was just dream 20 years ago. Physicians collect T-cells from a patient... We genetically engineer those T-cells, and that imbues them with a cancer-fighting property they didn't have before, and then that genetic-engineered T-cell is then given back to the patient. What happens with CAR-T is that these cells go into the patient, and then they see all this cancer, and they say, oh, we got to really staff up here. And so now all of a sudden we have, we put in so many cells, and now we got a thousand times that many. This approach works really well for blood cancers, but not for cancers with solid tumors like breast, lung, or pancreatic cancer. They have protective mechanisms that they've developed as part of being cancer, and those cancer cells in in a lump, in a solid tumor, are able to exclude T cells from the inside. That's something they've learned how to do in the process of becoming cancer. And so in order to have the same kind of success with uh, the more common adult solid cancers, we have to be able to overcome that limitation of getting the CAR T cells inside the cancer. It's something that people are spending a great deal of time sorting out, and we're beginning see hints that that's beginning to work. With CAR T-cell therapy, if things work well, the engineered cells stick around in the patient's body long enough to fight the cancer and beyond. Steve says that's what happened with Emily Whitehead. 
saw her in clinic a few weeks ago. She still has CAR T cells in her body. It's 11 years later. Uh, so she's taking her CAR T cells from Children's Hospital to the University of Pennsylvania, where she's beginning her education. In 2017, the FDA approved the first CAR T-cell therapy for cancer, Kimraya. Now there are six FDA-approved products. Describe the very bespoke nature of this drug and how it is so individualized and what the challenges are that that brings. So bespoke is exactly the way to describe this kind of uh, cell treatment. Uh, So we're taking cells from each individual patient. We're manufacturing these cells in a essentially two-week process. We're trying to make that process be faster, but right now it's a two-week process. And then at the end of that, we have cells that we have done a million tests on to be able to give them back safely to the patient, and we have proven to the patient, their parents, since I'm a pediatrician, and the Food and Drug Administration that this is a pure, safe product that can give back to the patient. And that bespoke nature means that we're doing the kind of testing for every single batch, that we, every single cell product that we make for a patient, we're doing the same kind of testing that a drug company would have to make for something that they're making a thousand vials of. Those tests are fairly complicated and add to the expense and the length of time. All of this makes the drugs very expensive, and that has been a challenge. If we want to scale to more common tumors, if we want to scale to countries that can't pay the kind of prices that you see in the first world, then addressing the manufacturing process is the number one challenge. But now, a new way of producing these therapies right at the hospital rather than in a drug company's lab could make things more affordable and speed up the process. Steve and his colleague Stefan Kadaki, associate director of the Cell and Gene Therapy Lab, gave me a tour. And when you look through these windows, you can see uh, what we call the support area. We headed to another part of the hospital, to a clean room facility. They're called clean rooms because we control, using HVAC, how many particles are floating around in the air. And um, so I was only allowed to go in because there was no active manufacturing happening on that day. But still, before we went any further, we had to put on caps and gowns and slide booties over our shoes. <laughs> All right, I love it already. <laughs> we walked past big silver cylinders that hold frozen stem and T-cells collected yeah. from patients into another smaller room. So now we're in what's called a class 100,000 or ISO 8 clean room. Stefan showed me a machine on the counter with hooks and buttons. It can manufacture CAR T-cell therapy right here at the hospital. This is the Clinimax Prodigy, and it's considered an automated cell processing device. All of the raw materials, the cells collected from patients, culture medium, and so on, they are in different bags and connected through plastic tubing in a closed system. The machine has a built-in computer, and then... 10 to 12 days later, you have your CAR T-cell product that's ready to infuse. Most, most of this time is cultivation period, meaning that you have a certain amount of CAR T-cells that you just made, and now you want them to grow up 10 or 20-fold. For what it accomplishes, the machine looks surprisingly simple. It reminded me of a fancy coffee maker. Steve Grubb and Stefan Kadaki agreed. I have a, you know, one of these automated latte machines, and I don't know what goes on in that thing, but it makes really good lattes. Yeah. The engineering controls 
are very much comparable to the engineering controls of an espresso machine in, in that you have these, these peristaltic pumps, you have something that makes things colder or warmer, and you have a way to push fluid along through some tubing. So in a way, this is, it's, a, it's a very mechanical process, and the, the genius really, in my mind, is that they apply this very simple mechanical pushing fluid through tubing with this closed tubing set to do the entire manufacturing process essentially in one big bag. Stefan and Steve first had to get this on-site manufacturing process all figured out and approved by the FDA, which meant a lot of paperwork. But it is helping to make the drug much less expensive. Within our specific setting, and this is, this is where you already have a stem cell lab, where you already have a laboratory medicine department that can do a whole bunch of the tests that you need to do. We can install a prodigy machine and we can manufacture the product at a, at a very, very significantly cheaper cost than the commercial product. We've done some uh, pretty careful cost analysis studies and we found that including labor, including all of the release testing, and this is why we're clear about this, this is really just a marginal cost to make one product. This doesn't include facilities and anything else, but we can do this for about $30,000 per patient. And before it was roughly what? Well, if you buy a dose of Kimraya, the first approved product from the Novartis company, it's $570,000. And now Stefan is making international connections to get this process to more hospitals. Price is one of, one of the issues, but the other thing is that we spend a significant amount of time figuring out how to make this work for us, how to, how to convince the agency that this is safe, that we know what we're doing. We, we wrote very comprehensive standard operating procedures that have a lot of our know-how and a, a lot of our experience baked into them. And we feel that it's a really good thing to not keep that under lock and key for ourselves only, but to use this internal knowledge to improve patient access in other places. And for Steve Grubb, this is the next frontier, the next challenge with these therapies. That's always been the hope, right? That you would start out with something complicated that works, and you go, oh, that's so exciting that it works. And now let's find a way to make it more automated and make it more available. And uh, the issue of access is something that we think about all the time. Coming up... One man's attempt to use gene therapy to cure his own condition, lactose intolerance. We ordered the most milk-tastic, like, cheesy monstrosity of a pizza we could find. That's next on The Pulse. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Teladoc Health. There are lots of reasons for wanting to be healthy. Family, work, living a fuller life? Teladoc Health understands. Whether you have diabetes, high blood pressure, or just need to manage your weight, Teladoc Health can help. Visit teladochealth.com slash what's your why for more information. That's T-E-L-A-D-O-C health slash what's your why. This message comes from NPR sponsor Viore. Jump into a new perspective on performance apparel. Viore makes products that stand the test of time and hope to inspire others to live vibrant, healthy lives, empowering your best life in clothing that can be worn for just about any activity from running to yoga. 
Visit viore.com slash NPR to receive 20% off your first purchase and enjoy free shipping on any U.S. orders over $75. Discover the versatility of Viore clothing. This message comes from NPR sponsor Charles Schwab with their original podcast, Choiceology. Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind people's decisions. Download the latest episode and subscribe at schwab.com slash podcast. What does it mean to be black in America? In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as black experiences, you'll hear it means everything. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcast. This is The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. We're talking about gene therapy and what's new in the field. Getting these treatments from bench to bedside takes years, sometimes decades. It involves a lot of paperwork, clinical trials, careful evaluation, getting approvals from the FDA, and on and on. Some people are impatient to see new breakthroughs happen, and they are taking matters into their own hands. Grant Hill has this story of a man looking for a treatment and willing to take risks. As a kid, Justin Atkin understood human beings as biological machines that occasionally needed repairs. From a very young age, I realized that, you know, if I'm going to be made of biology, it probably makes sense to understand how it works so that, like, if there's a problem, you know, you can fix it. And it wasn't long before Justin developed a problem. He was 15. It was absolutely debilitating. Seemingly out of nowhere, he began having violent reactions to all kinds of food, but mostly, like at least to a 15-year-old, the best kinds of food, pizza, ice cream. It's a lot of time spent in the bathroom being very, very, very uncomfortable, potentially for hours. It's enough that it can ruin an evening. It can ruin like a day even. It turned out Justin was lactose intolerant. Some 30 to 50 million Americans are too, but not all cases are as extreme as Justin's was. And he quickly learned milk and milk products are in lots of things. Industrially, we produce a lot more milk than we actually consume. So they use lactose as a filler in all kinds of things that there's there's no reason that lactose should be there. So no more pizza or ice cream, but also countless other random things. I'm on an antidepressant, and one of the fillers they use in the medication, and in many medications, is lactose. Suddenly, Justin could barely travel or go out to eat with friends. It was making it very, very, very difficult to, like, live my life and just go about my day and just exist. He took lactase pills to control his symptoms, but they didn't always bring relief. Justin wanted more than a Band-Aid to deal with this problem— So he studied biology in college with the goal of curing himself one day, specifically being able to eat pizza again. He became a researcher. And along the way, he discovered that his condition, as far as physical problems go, was actually quite simple. So lactose is what's called a disaccharide. Basically, it means it's two little sugar molecules stuck together. To properly digest these combined molecules, the small intestine must produce lactase, the stuff in those pills Justin took to try to ease his symptoms. Lactase is an enzyme that separates the two molecules that make up lactose 
and releases them independently as consumable nutrients. The production of lactase in the small intestine is controlled by something called the LCT gene. Justin says it acts like a dimmer switch, regulating lactase production depending on the gene's level of activation. Almost everyone is born with this switch cranked all the way up. For some, mostly those descended from populations that traditionally practiced cattle domestication, this dimmer switch never changes. It stays all the way up. But for most people, about two-thirds of the global population, lactase production slowly winds down with age or stops completely. That means lactose molecules move through the small intestine still bound together, unsevered. This causes problems when it hits the colon. It'll make it to where the bacteria live. And instead of you absorbing those nutrients, they're going to eat it, produce gas, and it increases the liquidity of the uh, stool as, as it goes through your system. Justin wanted to get to the root of the issue, the LCT gene. If it's a genetic problem, well, then it should be a genetic solution, surely. If the enzyme is just off, well, just turn it on. He wasn't the first person to think about it this way. He found a paper from 1998 where researchers tested this idea on rats that didn't produce lactase at all, which made them lactose intolerant. The researchers engineered a piece of DNA, and when it was administered to the rats, they started to produce lactase. Justin discovered this paper well over a decade after its publication, but he couldn't find any follow-up about the research, so he decided to do his own follow-up study on himself. It sounds like an insane thing to do, I realize, but uh, there was actually a lot of reasoning behind it. That's because the engineered gene that helped the lab rats produce lactase also just happens to be widely used in all types of research, not because of the lactase, but because it sort of glows when mixed with dye. Scientists use it as a positive control to know if processes are working. You can just buy it online. That was the craziest part, is that I didn't actually have to mess with it. And that was one of the benefits, because it was this thing that was so tested, but just in the niche of research. It was something that I could just buy the DNA, because they sell it as a positive control. So Justin bought the DNA, the set of instructions that would tell his small intestine to produce lactase. He used his biology training and experience working in research labs to combine the DNA that produces lactase with a vector that could make sure the gene would get to the right location, an adeno-associated virus, or AAV. It's sort of known as the gold standard for gene therapy. So like every gene therapy that's on the market uses an AAV because they're known to be extremely safe. He makes all of this sound really easy, but a lot of thought went into the process. Don't worry, he documented the whole thing on video. Um, I've spent the last several, a little over a couple of weeks at this point, growing a, a virus that codes for a functional copy of the lactase enzyme. Step by step, he recorded the development. Then, well, bottoms up. He downed his homemade pills. And while Justin was confident nothing bad would happen, you never know. It st still was, a, it, you know, potentially a huge risk. But I mean, that's just the way every clinical trial is. It's always a risk at the beginning. He waited three days for the virus to deliver the DNA to his small intestine. That was the amount of time they said in the paper that they waited before they started testing their rats. 
he gathered his friends and ordered out. Ranch dressing, barbecue sauce, chicken poppers, mozzarella cheese. We ordered the most, like, milk-tastic, like, cheesy monstrosity of a pizza we could find. If this doesn't hurt him, nothing will. Try to be less scared. Yeah. Is it good? It is. It is real good. I, you know, downed it and sat and watched a movie and waited and waited and waited and nothing happened. And I was just like, I was like, well, I mean, surely I should, my stomach should be hurting. Like this, this is weird. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it, it was, it, it was really that fast. It was, it was take the pill, wait three days and then instantly gone. The therapy wasn't designed to be permanent. It was just a proof of concept. He had no idea how long the effect would last. But Justin says he kept eating dairy and kept eating dairy. For about 18 months. In the paper, they tested it at six months and it was still working. So we figured that we could probably get at least six months. But anything after that was gravy. And so the fact that we got 18, to be clear, it was a solid year of like I could eat an entire quart of ice cream and be fine. And only at around the one-year mark was I starting to notice a, a very slow fade where milk was starting to bother me again. And it was starting to have the symptoms like slowly come back. Justin posted a video about his results on his YouTube channel, The Thought Emporium, where it's garnered over half a million views. And while Justin downplayed the risks involved with his experiment, it seems like safety has been on his mind anyway. He said he does not plan on making more gene therapy until he can perfect the design. It's something that I intend on revisiting um, when I have the means. But something that has become very important to me is making sure that if we're going to do a project, it has to be done properly. I know that there's a lot of people who would call themselves like biohackers, which to me, it has come to mean doing biology, but doing it really sloppy. And, and for me, I really want to make sure that research is being done thoroughly and is being properly documented and, you know, things are really thought through and considered before they're done and while they're being done. That story was reported by Grant Hill. We often think of gene therapy as a treatment or cure for rare disorders. Our next story is about a gene therapy approach for a condition that affects millions of people in this country alone, alcohol use disorder. Right now, that research is still in the animal model stage, which has its own challenges. Marcus Biddle reports. Oregon National Primate Research Center is one of seven non-human primate laboratories in the United States. The 200-acre facility has over 4,000 monkeys, from rhesus and Japanese macaques to squirrel monkeys and baboons. Researchers at the center work on issues related to AIDS, infectious disease, obesity, genetics, and addiction. My laboratory is very, very interested in how the brain processes information. That's Kathy Grant, chief of the Division for Neuroscience at the center. She has studied addiction through animal models for five decades. I see addiction as something that's gone awry. 
right? There's something that's interacting at a very biological, neurobiological level that becomes more important to the organism than their family, uh, their job, their health. Kathy has been running studies to find out who's at risk for alcohol use disorder and possible interventions. These studies are conducted using rhesus macaque monkeys for, quote, voluntary alcohol consumption models, or in layman terms, introducing them to alcohol. In these experiments, the macaque habitat is the bar. The bartenders are the scientists, and the patrons are the monkeys. For four weeks, the monkeys are offered alcohol in feeding tubes next to their water. They choose to consume it or not. The alcohol is not flavored, but contains 4% ethanol diluted in water. This is to make sure the monkeys choose to drink because of the way it makes them feel, not because they like the taste. The animals are not isolated. Rather, they are kept in a shared habitat with their social partner, where they interact regularly with other monkeys and laboratory staff. Soon enough, scientists can observe differences. Some monkeys seem indifferent about the booze, and they'll take a sip here and there. Where the future heavy drinkers start to gulp down their alcohol. Um, And what they're showing us with their behavior of gulping is they're assuring that they're going to reach this intoxicated state. With the monkeys that are heavy drinkers, Kathy says they start to show some behaviors that will sound familiar. Aggression is something that we see increases in the very heavy drinkers over time. There's also a lack of motor skills. Stepping up to a perch, for example, there might be a misstep there. We've also noticed the after effects in the morning of the very heavy drinkers. They will show a tremor in their hand. Kathy and her team monitor the monkeys throughout the process. They test their cognition and memory and also track their dopamine levels through imaging. In general, dopamine levels go up briefly when you drink. That's part of the reason it feels good and relaxing. But dopamine production decreases over time with heavy drinking. Kathy found that after exposing the monkeys to alcohol, the heavy drinkers in the crowd couldn't stop, even after periods of abstinence where no alcohol was offered. They'll rebound pretty heavily back to drinking and very quickly, like within the first day that it's available. The observations related to dopamine levels and not being able to stop drinking led Kathy to start thinking about a gene therapy-based approach for treating alcohol use disorder. She looked at levels of a protein that's produced in the brain, glial cell line-derived neurotropic factor, or GDNF for short. It enhances dopamine neuron function and survival. It's involved really in the maintenance, if you will, of these uh, dopamine cells. GDNF is keeping the transmission of dopamine in a very optimal state. And Kathy says in her study, they observed that when dopamine levels are down, GDNF levels are down as well. So, could a gene therapy using GDNF help encourage dopamine growth? We were tipping the scales to try and see if uh, GDNF, restoring GDNF in this uh, dopaminergic pathway would prevent that type of rebound or relapse drinking after abstinence. Administering this gene requires surgery and removing parts of the skull. 
Then, an unaltered GDNF gene sequence was delivered by a needle to the brain. It included an additional gene called a reporter to show where the GDNF ended up. Kathy selected eight monkeys, all heavy drinkers. Four got the active gene, while the others did not. After surgery, the plan was to reintroduce alcohol to the monkeys and to observe them for one year. In the first few months, the control group exhibited the same drinking patterns. The control animals would would relapse every time; they would go right back to drinking. But the monkeys who had received the actual treatment began showing signs of improvement, dramatic improvements. Those that got the active GDNF. Uh, Gene, they、um, at first would drink half of what they did before, and then over a period of a month, they would lower their drinking. We put them back into abstinence and back to drinking, and over the year that we studied them, their drinking fell to near zero. Kathy's team took brain tissue samples to determine the levels of dopamine released from each cell receptor. They were able to compare the amount of dopamine released from a heavy-drinking monkey's brain and those treated with GDNF. In the control group, the amount of dopamine released was 40%, but the monkeys treated with GDNF had dopamine levels restored to 70%, significant enough to eliminate voluntary alcohol consumption, or in other words, to get them to stop drinking. This gene therapy is still very far away from being used in humans. Kathy says one big reason is because it requires surgery. It's an extreme therapy, if you will, in that it's、uh, invasive. We had to put something down into the brain, a gene. But after more research and trials, the approach could potentially hold promise for cases where everything else has failed. For the Pulse, I'm Marcus Biddle. That's our show for this week. The Pulse is a production of WHYY in Philadelphia. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Our health and science reporters are Alan Yu, Liz Tang, and Grant Hill. Marcus Biddle is our health equity fellow. Charlie Kyer is our engineer. Our producers are Nicole Curry and Lindsay Lazarski. I'm Mike and Scott. Thank you for listening. Major funding for the Pulse is provided by a leadership gift from the Sutherland family. The Sutherlands support WHYY and its commitment to the production of programs that improve our quality of life. The Commonwealth Fund supports the Pulse and reporting on health equity. The Commonwealth Fund: affordable, quality healthcare for everyone. Behavioral health reporting on the Pulse is supported by the Thomas Scattergood Behavioral Health Foundation, an organization that is committed to thinking, doing, and supporting innovative approaches in integrated healthcare. WHYY's health and science reporting is supported by a generous grant from Public Health Management Corporation's Public Health Fund. PHMC gladly supports WHYY and its commitment to the production of services that improve our quality of life. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Amgen, a biotechnology pioneer leading the fight against the world's toughest diseases such as cancer, heart disease, asthma, and osteoporosis. In a new era of human health, Amgen continues to accelerate the pace of change, operating sustainably and drawing upon deep knowledge of science to push beyond what's known today. With each decade, they reliably deliver powerful new therapies to patients. Learn more at amgen.com. Support for NPR and the following message come from Rosetta Stone. 
the perfect app to achieve your language learning goals no matter how busy your schedule gets. It's designed to maximize study time with immersive 10-minute lessons and audio practice for your commute. Plus, tailor your learning plan for specific objectives like travel. Get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off and unlimited access to 25 language courses. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. When voters talk during an election season, we listen. We ask questions, we follow up, and we bring you along to hear what we learned. Get closer to the issues, the people, and your vote at the NPR Elections Hub. Visit npr.org elections.